0: If you're new and visiting, my name is Brendan. I'm one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace. So, really warm welcome. Uh, we are in the middle of a series on the Book of James, and uh, I hope you like intense messages because strap yourselves in this morning. This is perhaps the most intense call to repentance addressed to Christians in the entire New Testament. And I really have a burden for this message this morning. It's a very difficult message to actually be listening to, to hear. And so I'm going to pray after I read that God would really intercede for me and um, help us to hear. Uh, If you have your Bibles, open them up to James chapter 4. I'm going to be reading from verse 4. If you have your uh, James devotional books, that's on page 47. James 4. Verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Of God, or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace, therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Why don't you join with me in praying. Lord, this morning we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus. We thank you that through his sinless death on the cross, we can come before your throne and we can hear from you as you address us as your children. Lord, I pray for us as a church this morning. I pray for us as we sit underneath this strong and difficult word. Send your Holy Spirit. Give us tender hearts, eyes wide open, receptive to hear your voice. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start this morning with a question. And the question I wanted to start with is, have you ever met someone Who just really knows God? Like, have you ever met someone who walks in like a deep relationship with Him and is just overflowing with the fruits of the Spirit? You know, I've got a a couple of uh, people that come to mind when I think about that question. One of them for me is Mark Prater. Uh, the executive at Sovereign Grace Church who oversees our family of churches. And if you know Mark, Mark is a man of real character. He is a kind-hearted man. He is a patient man. He is a man that has the time of day for anyone. He's a man that faithfully prays. And when you just are engaging with him and looking at him, you can kind of tell just by his expression that he deeply cares and is bothered about you, and in more than that, loves the Savior as well. He is constantly encouraging others and informing them that he is praying for them. He is a man filled with the fruits of the Spirit. I wonder if you know someone like that. Wouldn't you love to know how to be like that? Walk with that kind of close relationship with God. How to be true friends with God. Well, I believe that contained within this passage is the key to true friendship with God. And so if you're taking notes, I've entitled this message this morning, How to be friends with God. Now, there's really just two simple points this morning, uh, two simple points that flow from the text, uh, but really one take home, a simple take home, and that is that we befriend God by humble submission to God. We, friend, we befriend God by humble submission to Him. So why don't we jump into our two points that are really two steps, and the first point is step one, and that is defriend the world. When you read uh, that first part of verse 4 from our passage this morning, and James writes to begin, you adulterous people, literally, you adulteresses, it's like, whoa, classic James, isn't it? Like, so full on and in your face, but what does he mean? I mean, were they being sexually immoral? You see, the key to understanding this first uh, opening verse is that God describes his relationship throughout the Bible with his people with a powerful metaphor. And the metaphor is that his relationship with his people is like that of a young man who has gone out and found himself a beautiful bride. Uh, Isaiah 54 says the following... uh, Isaiah says this, he says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth where she is cast off, says your God. The Lord, your maker, is like your husband, says Isaiah. And the Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, like a wife who married young only to be rejected. Husband and bride. Husband and wife. That's the relationship between God and His people. It's like a marriage relationship to Him. And James is saying that there is something about what these Christians are doing, something about the way that they're living, that is betraying God. Close to adultery or equivalent to adultery with Him. And that's shocking, isn't it? Earlier this year, I uh, was shocked when I found out that a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine, had been found to have committed adultery on his wife. Several times, actually. And to be honest with you, I was completely shaken by it. You just deeply feel for the consequences of what this guy's done. I mean, you feel for his wife and his children. You feel for his church and the pain and brokenness for them. It's just this painful consequence of sin and that's what james is saying is happening here in god's sight but james is not saying anything new he's just again echoing his big brother jesus who says for instance in matthew 12:39 says an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, the obvious question is, what have these people been doing to be described as adulteresses? And we read it in verse 4. Read that verse again with me. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? They've been acting as friends of the world. They have been seduced by the world. They have fallen in love with the world. But what does that even mean? What does it mean to be friends with the world? I mean, does it mean that I shouldn't like things in the world like nice clothes and food and coffee or shopping or property or being outdoors or the beach or bushwalks? Or does it mean I should just stay clear of people? Like, should I isolate myself from non-Christians? Maybe move to the bush or like some really, really Christian neighborhood like the Shire? Like, what does it mean? Well, in order to understand this saying, I think we need to understand two words. The first is, Friendship. What does friendship even mean? Uh, Douglas Moo in his commentary writes, we speak rather casually of friends in our day. But in the Hellenistic, that's the Greek world, friendship involved sharing all things in a unity both spiritual and physical. You know, we live in the age of fast food friendships. They're plentiful and they're shallow. And we're not talking about Facebook friends or Instagram followers or the high school friends we haven't seen in five years. The concept of friendship was different. People had fewer friends. A friend was something with or someone with whom you shared all things. You shared your physical possessions and you had a sharing of a spirit. You had a sharing of heart. You had a same way of thinking. A friend was someone... Who you shared your stuff with and who you shared the same outlook on life. A lifelong pact between people of shared values and loyalties. That's what a friend means. A sharing of all things. The second question is, well, what does the world mean? Uh, Dan McCartney, in his commentary, writes the following. He says, the world here is neither the physical universe per se, which is God's creation... And therefore, good, nor human beings per se who are made in God's image and whom God loves. But listen to this the ethos of life in opposition to or disregard of God and His kingdom. You see, the world here, it's not the physical earth or creation. We're not talking about mountains or rivers or rainbows or rainforests or anything like that. We're not even talking about predominantly people. The world is a way of thinking about life. It's an ethos. It's a mindset. It's a mindset that opposes or disregards God. It's godless culture. It's that way of thinking that says, you should try your best to get ahead of the pack. To get a foot in the door, in the housing market, no matter what the cost. That job satisfaction is number one. And that nothing should stand in the way of you in the next smart career move. That your identity is based on what you feel inside. That your goal in life is to be, to tr- to be true to yourself. Your feelings and desires should be followed and actualized to be as happy as possible. The work hard, play hard culture that lives for the endless cycle of uh, work and leisure. Except, of course, that family should always come first and your children are your, uh, your legacy and so should be afforded every opportunity that money can buy. That no one has the right to tell you how to live your life. That you should have the freedom to live as you please, marry whom you please, be whom you please, of course, as long as you don't harm anyone else. It's exactly what James is talking about when he says in chapter 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Unstained from the world doesn't mean moving to a commune and avoiding non Christians. It means don't be drawn into a godless culture. You see, the friend of the world is the person who lives in a unity of heart and mind with the world. The friend of the world is someone who has an outlook, a worldview. They look on the world, and when they look on the world, they don't primarily think of God. It's godless thinking. When they think of how to use their time, how to use their talents, how to use their treasure, they don't think predominantly of God at all. They think of opportunity for me. They look at life through a godless lens. And here's the scary truth. Verse 4. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. To have a real unity with the world, a unity of mind, a unity of possessions, to place yourself against God. Because the world is humanity ignoring God, yes, in one sense, but really in defiance against God. Do we feel the weight of this? If we live with a godless attitude and outlook, we make a new enemy God Himself. I mean, on one level, how can this be? I mean, Colossians 1 says, uh, peace with God has been achieved on the cross, peace that can never be undone. So how can we find ourselves as enemies? I mean, didn't Christ on the cross pay for our sins in full and and make peace between God and man for all that come to him in trust? Uh, Alec Mottier writes the following about this. He says, enmity is such a strong word With overtones of the sundering of relationships, the undoing of treaties, returning to a former state of affairs. In the most fundamental sense, this simply cannot be. Peace with God has been achieved by the blood of Christ's cross. We once enemies have now been reconciled. Nevertheless, though this is gloriously true, we who are AD children can live BC lives. Though Christ has paid in full for our sins on the cross and we are joined permanently to Him, despite this being the case, we can live before Christ's lives, though we're AD children, after-death children. Kind of like this. You know, just like a marriage can remain intact from the outside while one person is involved in a fling on the side... so too can our relationship with God be sullied when we befriend the world. And this is why James begins by calling these Christians adulteresses. They have the wrong object of love. They are in love with, they are friends with the world and not with God. Or how are these Jewish Christians being friends with the world in the first place? How were they aligning themselves with the world? Well, James writes in chapter 2, they were discriminating against people. They were showing favoritism towards the rich at the expense of the poor. They were full of selfish ambition in chapter 3, fighting amongst each other for prized positions within their communities. They were pursuing their own destructive pleasures and fighting and quarreling and allowing their passions to consume and control them. But here's the point. It's not just these Christians that are at risk of becoming friends with the world. It's possible. It's possible to find ourselves drifting into friendship with the world today as well. Sure, the cultural temptations are different, but the root is the same. A godless worldview that allows our passions and our desires to roam free. You know, the Apostle Paul once said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He was a man that was so consumed by love for Jesus. And yet, rather than being completely overcome by a love for Jesus and a desire for Him to be glorified with everything, we can find ourselves with a godless, worldly outlook rather than asking God where he'd have me go and how I can best serve him, my decisions can be based on the most exciting opportunity, the greatest adventure, the next smart career move, the most fun, what will work best for me and my family. Rather than being concerned with how to give more of Christ to my family and friends, I can begin to find myself concerned to give them more things like a better education, better holidays, better financial security. Rather than treasuring the local church and building my life around it, looking to sacrificially serve it and build it because Christ loves it so dearly, I can treat it more like a local soccer club. I love it. It's great. I mean, I enjoy it, but... There's lots of clubs around and I want to live a life of adventure. I want to travel the world. And here's the best news. There's soccer clubs everywhere. The friend of the world has a godless outlook. Their God has become their own passions and desires. Jesus is a piece of their life, but he's not their life. He's their accomplice. He's their travel companion. He's their assistant. He's a passenger, but he's not the lord of their life. He's not driving their life. He's a passenger in the seat of the car. Can I ask you a question? Do you have a godless outlook? Can I ask you a personal question? Are you in bed with the world? Sunday you're here at church, but Monday through to Saturday you have a different lover. Well, that's good news. Read with me, verse 5. James says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? I love this because already there are hints of grace. You know, James is probably here quoting a combination of uh, Exodus 34, which says you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name that is being, is jealous, is a jealous God. And Ezekiel 36, which says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. What does it mean? It means that God has placed his Holy Spirit within us and is permanently joined to us himself. And he is jealous for us. Uh, Michael Horton says the following. He says, Jealousy in humans is a perversion because it implies a right that does not belong to us. In God, jealously, jealousy is a form of protecting, guarding that which is precious to God, both his character and his covenant people. Do you realize God is jealous for you? He has placed His Holy Spirit within you and He is jealous to guard and protect you, His covenant child. I love this passage because of the hints of grace we already find. We might befriend the world and commit spiritual adultery with God, but God will not stand by idly. He is jealous for us. We are joined to Him by grace through faith in Christ and He is jealous for us by grace. He is longing to protect us. He is longing to guard us. Well, how do you become friends with God? Step one, defriend the world. Reject the values of this world. Refuse to live with self at the center. Reject the godless outlook on Christ, on, on, on life. Look at life through the lens of the gospel with God at the center. But step two, not just defriend the world. Step two, submit to God. You know, part of the challenge we have to faithful Christian living, I believe, is in fact our Aussie culture. You know, we have a convict heritage, at least for some of us we do. Uh, It's kind of the bedrock of our culture. This idea of kind of a fair go for everyone and mateship this idea that everyone should have a fair go in life on the one hand and that everyone should be on the same level and that's where we get for instance the tall poppy syndrome the idea if you stand up from the crowd we're going to cut you down to size and there's lots of good in it you know we value friendship mateship and we value justice a fair go but we find authority difficult, and Christian life is no different. You know, we love passages that talk about God as our friend, God as our mate. Like John fifteen fifteen, Jesus says, "I've called you friends, for all that I have heard from the, from my Father, I have made known to you." But we can be blinded by our culture and assume that friends means equals. So we treat Jesus as we would any other mate. Like a travel buddy. Like a confidant. Like a part of my life. My mate. But I have lots of mates. Jesus is the mate that helps me with God. But remember, friendship is about sharing all things. It's about sharing the same mindset and possessions and... And therefore, friendship with Christ is about sharing all things with him. You know, just before in that passage in John 15, Jesus had been talking about abiding in him. And he'd been saying, the way you do that is by obeying my commands, by being obedient to me. You see, rather than friendship making us equals, we become friends with God when we humbly recognize our place underneath him when we submit to him read with me verse 6 it says the following he says but he gives more grace therefore it says god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble you see god is not indifferent to the proud God actively opposes the proud. God gives grace to the humble. It's an overused word in many ways. It's kind of lost its meaning um, in Christianese, kind of speak, um, as a real positive thing. But to be humble means to be of low social status. It means to be lowly. It means to be undistinguished. Humble yourself before God. Submit to Him. Recognize your position as His creatures. Recognize His right to rule and reign over your life, to call the shots, to send you anywhere, to ask you to give anything, to to demand that you serve in any way He sees fit. And what does He promise to those who humble themselves? Grace. Grace. But what is this grace that he gives? Well, in context, grace to resist worldliness and grace to grow in godliness. And this is James' main point in verses 6 through to 10. Humble yourself before God, submit to God, and he will help you. Read with me again. Verse 7, he says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. C.J. Mahaney puts it this way. I love it. It's so good. He says, Humility is a glad submission to the authority and wisdom of God as revealed in his word. Humility is a glad obedience to the good and wise commands of God. Humility is a glad submission to God and not an arrogant contending with God. Humility is a glad submission to the authority of God. It's placing ourselves underneath him. Well, if God gives grace to the humble, how do we take our place, as Alec Motyer puts it, in this favoured category? You know, verses 6 through to 10 can feel really overwhelming as we read it. You know, there's 10 commands in total in this section. It's full of Jewish language and imagery that's kind of foreign to us, but would have been really understood by James's initial audience. What James is really trying to do is to wisely pastor us, to help spell out clearly for us what it means to truly submit to God and to become his friends. And the first thing he tells us is in verse 7. He says the following. He says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's the first thing we do, is to resist the devil. You see, the devil is the archetype of the proud person who resists the will of God. He is the source of the wisdom from below, which is bitterly jealous, selfishly ambitious, boastful and false. We don't have to fight him. We simply resist. We flee. That word means... Well, he flees as we resist. That word means to seek safety in flight. Just by resisting him, he seeks safety in flight. You know, the Jesus communities that James writes to were fighting and quarreling because they had let their desires take control. James says, submit to God. Humbly be obedient to him and resist the devil. And what's the grace you receive? He will will flee. But not just resist the devil. Verse 8, draw near to God. He says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I've always wondered kind of, what does draw near to God mean? You know, we often think of it like coming to God in worship, but that doesn't really fit the context here of what James is talking about. What does draw near to God mean? It's a call to return to God in repentance. It's a call to realign ourselves with him. And James focuses on three aspects of that. Firstly, with our deeds. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Cleanse, wash, wash. Wash your hands. You know, in Jewish thinking, hands represent actions. Realign your deeds with God, says James. Clean up your act. Secondly, not just your deeds, your disposition as well. Purify your heart, you double-minded. You see, in Jewish thinking, your heart was the inner you. And so James is trying to say, stop polluting yourself By facing both ways, by choosing the world on the one hand to love and choosing God on the other hand to love, purify your heart. Decide to trust in the things of God alone. This is not the repentance of salvation, but this is the restoration of fellowship of a strayed Christian is what James is talking about. Do you know what? It's just like the prodigal son who always was a child of the father, but he had to wash his hands. He had to stop living sinfully and he had to purify his heart. He had to make a decision to return to his father. And as the prodigal son drew near, what grace did he find? His father running out to greet him. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Come to him in repentance. Wash your hands, clean up your acts, purify your heart, be all in for Jesus, not facing both ways. But there's a third aspect as well. Verses 9 and 10, he says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is the language of genuine heartfelt repentance. It's mourning and weeping over sin. See, James is again drawing on the language of the Old Testament prophets who would have been so clear to these Jewish Christians. Like Hosea chapter 9, verse 1 says, Rejoice not, O Israel, exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. Now, he doesn't mean that Christians should always be like downcast or something like that. No, in verse 2 of chapter 1, he had said, Count it all joy, even when you're in the midst of sufferings. But he's addressing a specific situation where these Christians were laughing and rejoicing at their worldliness. And James is saying that they need to wipe the smirk from their faces and genuinely repent of their sin with heartfelt sorrow. They need to humble themselves. They need to get down on their knees before God in heartfelt repentance and he will graciously lift them back up onto their feet. Well, how do you become friends with God? Step one, defriend the world. Step two is to submit to him. How? Resist the devil. Draw near to him in your actions, and your heart, with genuine repentance. See, the truth is that adultery rarely happens in an instant. But gradually over time. It starts with a lingering gaze. And it turns to flirting. And it finally ends with climbing into bed. In closing, I want to end with a question. A question for us. How are you going in your friendship with God? How does your current friendship with God compare to 12 months ago? Are there any areas of your life in which you're flirting with the world? Areas where Jesus Christ has ceased to be your greatest passion and joy? Where a godless way of thinking has begun to creep in? James would give you wise counsel. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. Purify your heart. Mourn and weep over your sin with genuine repentance. But this is not where it ends if in this moment you realize that there's areas of your life that you are being seduced by the world, don't despair, there's great news. Verse 6a, it says, but he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. You know, Richard Sibbs, the famous Puritan preacher, says the following, he says, there's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. He gives more grace. There is more mercy in Jesus Christ than there is sin in you. He gives more grace. He is the God of super abundant grace. The only reason you are here is because while you hated him, he sent his son for you. Who died a thousand deaths that you alone deserve in your place in agony on that cross whose body was torn, whose blood was poured out, that through grace you might come to be reconciled with God. Who then did not leave you in your godless way, but came after you in love, pursued you in His jealousy for you. And you came to God because He first came after you and led you to humbly repent and believe in Him. He gives more grace. He will give you the grace you need to resist worldliness and to faithfully submit yourself to his authority in all of your life. Church, may we be a people that walk in close friendship with God. May we be a people that humbly submit to God. Won't you join me in praying to close? Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for your word. And we also thank you that you don't hold back in your word. but You speak hard words to us in love. Because you love us so much. I just want to pray this morning for anyone sitting here who is aware in this moment that they've been in bed with the world. They've been seduced by a godless way of thinking. The values and culture that has you on the periphery is in defiance of you. Lord, for those amongst us, I pray that you would remind us of your grace, that you would help us to cleanse our hands to humbly submit before you, to purify our hearts to come to you, to draw near to you and that in return we would see the Father who comes running out to greet us. Thank you Lord that you give more grace. Pray this in Jesus name. Amen. let we sing Jesus true and only, I pray this would be our prayer. I pray this would be that Jesus is actually true only in this life. We wouldn't be in bed.